Okay, good evening, everybody. Um, thanks for coming out, and now it's like pitch black and freezing cold all of a sudden, like really quick outside. Um, before we start, I want to thank uh, the Glassbergs who sponsored this evening's shear uh, in memory of uh, Mark and Eunice's parents, Eunice's parents, Fader Brachig Bracha Bas Betzalel, and David Eliezer Ben Yisrael Anshel, and Mark's parents, Sarah Fredel Bas Mordechai, and Yone Ben Ephraim, are learning this evening to be a Zachus for the Neshamos. Um, this is uh, what's happening now, tonight, and ongoing. Now you're going to see you know, over the next uh, number of months is that going to be a, this is kind of like a new idea to start giving like a, a number of series on different topics, different things. Uh, each, you know, every every four or five, will be, we'll switch to some other other topic. Um, we'll see. We'll experiment with it and see how it goes. So let me know. Give me feedback. Um, and this first one um, is a topic that I've been thinking about a lot. Um, I talk to a lot of people about a lot. A lot of my students in Shiva I talk to about a lot. Um, and I think it's something that, that is really worth exploring. And I'm going to give no more introduction than simply send you right away to source number one, which is an excerpt from a book called With Perfect Faith. If you want to read like a really dense, thick book about Amuna. So you can go, I went to the YU library and I got a book called With Perfect Faith by Rabbi J. David Blythe. Rabbi Blythe um, is a incredibly um, uh, amazing Talmud Chacham, works in Yeshiva University. He's a, he's a medical doctor, uh, a philosopher, a ethicist. He's written many, many books on many topics in Jewish law and halacha and medicine and contemporary halacha problems, all kinds of stuff. And he's also an expert in uh, issues of Faith, and he wrote this big book on the Yudgimli Karma, the Rambam, the Thirteen Principles of Faith, the Rambam, which we're going to talk about tonight. And he begins the book as follows: One widespread misconception concerning Judaism is the notion that Judaism is a religion which is not rooted in dogma. The view that Judaism has no dogmas originated with Moses Mendelssohn has subsequently gained wide currency. We don't have any really real beliefs. And some, what do we say about Judaism? It's a Judaism of Deed, not of creed. That's what people say about Judaism, right? In some circles, this idea has been maintained with such vigor that it's been somewhat jocularly, jocularly described as, as, uh, as itself constituting the dogma of dogmalessness. Nevertheless, even a superficial acquaintance with the classical works of Jewish philosophy is sufficient to dispel this misconceived notion. It's simply not true. To be sure, membership in the community of Israel is not contingent upon a formal creedal affirmation. You don't have to say something. Um, this, however, does not imply that members of the community of Israel are free to accept or to reject specific articles of faith. Just because you don't have to declare yourself a believer right, in order to be accepted as a Jew doesn't mean that there aren't certain things that we're expected to believe. Um, birth as a Jew carries with it uh, unrenounceable obligations and responsibilities, intellectual as well as ritual. Right? Not only are we expected to do certain things, a lot of things, we're also expected to believe certain things. While great stress is placed upon fulfillment of commandments and performance of good deeds, it is a gross error to assume that this stress is accompanied by a diminution of obligations with regard to belief. One doesn't have to cancel out the other. It is certainly true that lessened, uh, that lessened concern with the explication of the dogmas of Judaism was evidenced during a certain period of Jewish history. Certainly there are times when we didn't really emphasize uh, these, these concepts and beliefs as much. This, however, was the result of an unquestioning acceptance of basic principles of faith, rather than disparagement of the role of dogma. Right? Basically what Blech wants to argue is that historically, people didn't necessarily always ask the questions of what we should believe. They just kind of took them for granted. 
certain things they ex- accepted, assumed that everybody believed at times. In some epochs, formulations of essential beliefs were composed by foremost thinkers as a corrective measure designed to rectify this lack of attention. But once it got bad and people were not paying attention to Amuna and to certain things we're supposed to believe, so what happened? So certain, certain individuals realized we have to write this down. We have to make this clear to everybody. What is it exactly that we're supposed to believe? Um... <coughs> Sorry, in other ages, endeavors designed to explicate the dogmas of Judaism can constitute a reaction to creedal formulations on the part of other religions. Right? Certainly, a big part of what we, what we like to argue is that we're very different than Christianity. Christianity is very much about what you believe, very, a lot less about what you do, and we see ourselves counter to Christianity that we are much more about what you do, much less about what you believe, which is true. The importance of correct belief as a religious obligation is stressed in particular in the writings of Bachi ibn Kuda. In the introduction to his work, acclaimed, his widely acclaimed Chovas Halavavos, properly translated as Duties of the Intellect. It's called Duties of the Heart. But why is it, why is it wrong to call Duties of the Heart? Because when we talk about the heart, classically, the lave, what does it really refer to? Your, your intellect, actually. They, the people talked about the heart as the, as the house of intellect. We talk about heart now as, as feelings and emotions. But it used to be talked about as as, as intellect in the, in the Chobos Levavos it's about what is the Jew supposed to believe that's what it's really about right now what Jew supposed to feel um, so Bachir wrote that the Torah demands of man that he acquire the knowledge requisite for fulfillment of the obligations of the intellect just as it makes demands of him with regard to fulfillment of the obligations of the physical organs and basically Ben Mechaia pointed out that we have to do both we have a responsibility in the things that we do and a responsibility in the things that we believe and both are important and they're both there. I want to take you to one other, one other story that he tells, um, which in your, yours is right on the, on, the, on the right side. And he says as follows, Every age has witnessed the presence of both believers and doubters. It should be right next, right? It's in the... In the I don't have one. It is, right? It looks a little different. Right, so every age has witnessed the presence of both believers and doubters. Right? We're not the only generation in which people uh, question... Right, certain co- concepts. Uh, did God really write the Torah? Did uh, did God really create the world? Did, did, does God really punish? Does God really care? Is He really paying attention? Is He around? All these questions. So we're not the first generation to have these questions. Intellectual doubt and the questioning of fundamental beliefs has always been present in one form or another. It is nevertheless axiomatic that man has the ability to rise above such inner conflict and to experience faith. Right, even though we doubt. That's normal. We have the ability, he argues, to be able to believe. A just and beneficent God could not demand belief without bestowing upon man the capacity for faith. Abiding belief must, however, be firmly rooted in knowledge. And that's what we're going to do here. Study has the unique effect of dispelling doubt. When you learn, it has a great opportunity to remove doubt to a certain extent. There's a story of a group of Jewish students in Berlin during the Haskalah period, who has, sometime in the, the 17, late 1700s, who as a result of their encounter with secular, uh, secular society began to experience religious doubts. Questioning the faith claims of Judaism, they were on the verge of rejecting fundamental theological, theological beliefs. But before making a final break with Judaism, they resolved to send one of their company to the yeshiva of Velazhi. I don't know who they chose, how they drew straws, I guess. They send one person to go, go learn in Velazhi. Right, which is the, at the time the, the, the foremost Torah center of the world. 
to determine whether or not there existed satisfactory answers to the questions which troubled him. We're not thousands of yeshivas around in those days, right? Velazhin was the yeshiva. So he sent him to Velazhin, and let's see what he's going to come back with. Give us some answers. So what happened? The young man to whom they delegated this task spent a period of time as a student in the yeshiva and immersed himself completely in that institution's program of studies. What's the program of studies in Velazhin? Kumar. He was learning Kumar. Um, upon his return to Berlin, I'm sure he's talked about, learned other things there also, but right, I don't think he went to learn philosophy necessarily. Upon his return to Berlin, he was met by his friends, who eagerly awaited his report. The young man described his experiences and related that he had never before experienced such intellectual delight. But, they demanded, have you brought answers to the questions which we formulated? Do you have answers? No, he replied. I have brought no answers. But the questions no longer plague me. So, I found this to be an interesting introduction because um, a lot of times when we talk about the idea of, of, of faith and doubt and, and wondering, and is this really true or not true, or how do I find out? Um, the, the, the answer to the, first of all, aren't necessarily a lot of these questions that we have, and we'll talk about more of them as we move along uh, in the next few, few, uh, few evenings. Um, there's not always going to be answers to the, to, to the questions that we're searching for, right? A lot of the questions don't have answers. But the question that we really need to find for ourselves at times is, how do we live life with questions? Um, and what is it, in the first place, if I want to know anything, if I want to talk about belief and talk about faith, the first question I have to ask myself is, well, what am I expected to believe in the first place? Right? What is it that Judaism actually asks of me? What is it that HaKadosh Baruch Hu is even inquiring and asking and, and expecting of us before we can talk about whether I believe it or I don't believe it. I first have to spend the time trying to understand it. So what I want to do tonight um, is take a look at, at a few thinkers who endeavor to try to line up and you know, uh, list for us what it is that the Torah, that HaKadosh Baruch Hu expects a Jewish person to believe, where, those, where they got those ideas from, why they differed with each other, and what the ramifications of those different approaches are. Um, that's really what I, what I want to see. So we can walk out with a certain sense of at least knowing as our first year, right, before we're going to talk more in depth about certain aspects of belief, to know what the, what the building blocks are. What are the foundational concepts that, that are expected of us? And then we can, then we can move from there. So uh, around the year 2000, so people started asking all kinds of funny questions. So somebody asked Dr. David Berger. Dr. Berger is a professor of uh, Jewish history, he's an expert in in Jewish-Christian relations and all kinds of things, and someone asked him, what's the most important book that was written in the last 1,000 years? Between the year 1,000 and the year 2,000, what would you say? What would you guess? The Rambam, which, what, what, the Rambam? The Mordevuchim, okay, the Mordevuchim, okay, the Rambam's great philosophical work, yeah, what else? Okay, the Mishnah Torah, you can say that's Jewish books, yeah. What? Okay, I'm just saying, that's not the right answer. It's not the right answer. Okay, you're very focused on the Ram, you know where we're going, right. So I'll tell you, so I'll tell you something that Dr. Berger said. He said, the Rambam's Perish Hamishnayos, his explanation of the Mishnah. So yeah, gotcha, that's the one you wouldn't expect to say, right? The, his explanation of the Mishnah. Which is very nice. There are a lot of people who gave Peyushim on the Mishnah, the Mishnah, 
You know, there, there are many people who wrote explanations of the Mishnah. Why is the Rambam's explanation of the Mishnah so important? Because it's written the Rambam's explanation of the Mishnah on the 10th paragraph of Masechah Sanhedrin, where he lays out the 13 principles of faith. That's where he writes that. And Dr. Berger believed that this is the most important work that was written in the last thousand years. You can decide if you really agree with that statement or not. But the point is that the, the Rambam's Yurgil Meikare Emunah have become foundational for the Jewish people. And what I want to talk about for a little bit is where they came from. First of all, who's the Rambam? If you want to talk about the Rambam for a little while tonight. Who is the Rambam? So the Rambam is born 1135 in Cordova, Spain. Um, at a very, very early age, his family encounters um, radical Islamists who basically tell them Islam or the sword, so they have to run. They run away. His father, Rabbi Maimon, um, so he takes the family, they flee south, and they move to Fez, eventually, the home of Yitzchak Al-Fasi, known as the Rif, one of the, again, one of the a great um, codifiers of halacha. Um, early, early days before anyone was codifying halacha, so the, the Rif was doing this. Um, the persecutions of the Islamists took them even further out of, out, of, out of Africa and they ended up heading to Eretz Yisrael. They got to Eretz Yisrael during that time, it's also not such a good place to be. Why? Because of the Crusades. So they, had, they actually go, they go to the, they documented they went to the Kotel, they went to different places in Israel, but the, the, it was a bad place to be, so they left and they moved to Egypt. And they settled outside Cairo. Um, during this time, the Ramam is hitting like 18, 19, 20 years old. This is when he writes the parish from Mishnayim. At this age, the first piece that he wrote, before he wrote the Mishnah Torah, which is the first person to really codify halacha in an organized way, um, that was later in his life. Um, and then he wrote, the last thing he wrote was the, the Mornavuch and the Guides of Perplexed, which I've never read and I don't know if I ever will understand. But um, right, the, his great philosophical work. Um, but when he's there, his father actually passes away at a young age, and he and his brother David are responsible for the family. But David sees that his brother Moshe is like a pretty smart guy. And he decides that he's going to support the family. Moshe, you stay and learn, and I'm going to go. And his brother David goes out, and he, and he uh, sails on the high seas and brings back Parnassah for the family. And he actually passes away um, on, while he's out um, you know, raising, you know, trying to make money. And so then the Rambam is stuck. Now he has to raise money for the family. So what does he do? So he learned from his father, not just to be a Tamil Chacham, he happened to learn philosophy and he learned medicine from him. And so he becomes a doctor and he starts working and you know, creating, uh, they say, um, all kinds of revolutionary practices in medicine. Ends up as the physician of the Sultan, of, of Salad, uh, the physician of Saladin himself. And uh, he becomes a very, very acclaimed doctor. So he's doing all this while he's also putting together some of the most important philosophical works that will ever uh, exist in uh, in, in, in uh, in Jewish history. So he writes besides, so these are the three books that he writes, but the main one we're going to talk about tonight is the, the, uh, the Perish of, of the, uh, the that he writes. Fine. So I want you to take a look at, not source number two for right now, but source number three. Actually, look at source number two first. Source number two first. Source number two is a Mishnah in the 10th parak of Mesecha Sanhedrin, which begins as a very beautiful song that we all know, or maybe you might know, um, for like Israel Bulliger back in the day. Call Yisrael Every Jewish person has a place in the world to come. No matter, right, everybody, everyone has a place. It doesn't matter who you are. Because your nation is all tzaddikim and they're all going to inherit the land. Amazing. A wonderful thing. And then the Mishnah continues. That part's not part of the song. 
right? The following people don't get to go, don't enter the world to come. Okay, why not? What are the, who, who are these people? Haomer ain't chiasamesimina Torah, someone who says that God didn't say that, there, that there's no concept of, of that the resuscitation of the dead, or you say ain't Torah mina shemayim, or you say that God didn't give the Torah. Vapikores uh, and someone who is an apikores. The word apikores does not just mean we call it heretic. It's kind of complicated what apikores really means. Some type of some type of denying of of uh, of God's existence in some way. Um, and there are other examples that the, that the Mishnah gives. But the bottom line is that the Gemara then continues afterwards, lay, laying out certain individuals who, because of these certain beliefs that they don't have, so they don't end up getting a place in the world to come. And the Rambam, in his Parish of Mishnayis. Source number three. He spends a very, very long time his introduction to Masechah Sanhedrin talking about all these types of ideas and he begins actually a big conversation about what happens to Olam Abba. What's Olam Abba? What's Tachiyah Samesim? How does it work? He's a big machlokus with the Ramban about how, how all that works. He did that actually a year ago, I think, in, in the, the men's contemporary tabis where we talked about Olam Abba a little bit. But then he lays out what he believes are the 13 fundamental principles of faith in Judaism. Source number three. We're not going to read them all because we've here the whole night just reading the Yoga Mikari Muna. But just, let's just read, I just bolded them to tell you just the basics of what each one is. Number one. First one is that a person should believe that God exists. There's a God. Number two. That God is one. God doesn't have a partner. God doesn't have a child. God doesn't have parts to him. Number three. When God, we say God's hand, it doesn't mean that God has hands. God does not have hands. God does not have a face. God does not have any of the things that we talk about. It's all anthropomorphism. In the Torah, God doesn't have any physical aspects to him. Number four, that no one ever, there was nothing that existed before God existed. God is the beginning of all existence. I said, Hamishi, number five. Meaning that you only daven to Hashem. We don't daven to anybody else. There's no one else to daven to. Don't daven to people or to idols or to anything else, or the sun, moon, and the stars. We praise and daven only to Kadosh Baruch. Number six. Emuna. God talks to human beings. Or at least he has talked to human beings. Number seven. Nevuah's Moshe. The fact that Moshe's Nevuah is unique and different from all other. Nevuos that ever existed. He spoke to God face to face. He's the only one who, who, uh, through whom actual halachos were given over, etc. Number eight. To believe that God gave every single word of the Torah. Number nine. That no one can say that the Torah is not uh, relevant anymore. The Torah was nullified. Like the, the Christians argued at the beginning of Christianity that they're, they're the new Israel and that the Torah and the bris with Hashem and Amisal was destroyed. That, that one, of the, one of the fundamental beliefs is that no, that, that Torah remains the same. Number 10. That God knows what we're doing. Right? He didn't create the world and walk away. That God created the world and then He stayed there and He watches us and He knows what's happening. Number 11. That God gives reward to those who keep the Torah and He punishes those who don't. Number 12 is the idea of Mashiach. And number 13 is 
the concept of Tchiyas and that at some point God will resurrect the dead. If you want a quick, short list, look at the box in the middle and the bottom of the second page, bottom of page three, that gives you a, the, 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 the shortened version of the 13 principles of faith of the Rambam. Okay. And the Rambam says right afterwards, still in that same paragraph, it's a little bit larger, the Kasher, the Rambam is very clear about how important he believes these, these, these concepts are. And he says, First, person believes in all these things, he knows that they're true. You're considered part of the Jewish people. And you should love that person, etc., etc. And look where it's bolded. Person could have done every terrible Avera in the world to let the Yitzhara take, take control of them and they do Nema and Avera. They did it. He's, he's punished. You're punished because he did something bad, fine. Person can do tshuva. But that person, that person goes to get Olam Haba eventually. They're going to go. They're going to go. He's a sinner. He or she is a sinner. But they, but they get a chelik on because they believe what they're supposed to believe. But if a person doesn't believe one of these things, this person is left, is, is, is left taking themselves out of the group and they've, uh, they don't believe in the main, the main concepts. And they're called a heretic. That Hashem says that a person who doesn't believe these, one of these things is out. Is not included. Because to, to be included in a part of Am Yisrael is to believe these 13 concepts. And the Rambam is clear. Even if you don't believe any one of them, he's going to argue. It's, very, very, it's a very powerful statement. It's a very scary statement. They say that a person who doesn't believe any one of these is not considered part of the Klai Yisrael. You know, check the Pew research study recently, right? What percent of, of, of Jews are even considered Orthodox Jews in, in, out of all the Jews in the world? 10%, right? So we're talking 90% of, of, of Jews likely don't believe some of these things. Okay, so we're going to have to see what to do with that. Right? Do they not believe it because they've rejected it? They don't believe it because they never taught it? Right? Maybe that makes a difference. Right? But the, the, the point being that the Rambam is very clear that he believes that these 13 are so fundamental that if a person rejects any one of them, they are not part of Klai Yisrael. It's a very scary thing to say. Yeah? Don't some of these seem a little like reactionary to specific things going on? Like, you look at like Christian Jesus. Some of these are, for sure, just like general Some of them are like, well, God is one and there's no other parts of the end. He does, I said he doesn't have a son. The Ramam writes those words, but yeah. That's sound reactionary. Well, again, we're going to have to ask the question, why does he choose 13? Like, like na- name me something really important that's not here. Yeah. Mm-hmm. Then you wouldn't be even talking about Mashiach, right? He would have come already. So, so 
Okay, good. You, there are lots of questions to ask. Like, you could ask a thousand questions. What? God created the world. God created the world. How about, how about God took us out of Mitzrayim? How about belief in that? How about belief that we're the chosen nation? That's not there. Right? There, there's a lot. There's, we could spend 13 weeks probably breaking down, maybe we should at one point, right? breaking down each and every one of these. Right? And there are a lot of, there are a lot of questions that a lot of, a lot of uh, you know, other Rishonim and other Achronim have asked on the Rambam as how he chose to get to, the, to this number and these specific ones. Right? There are a lot of, where did it come from? Where did, did he make it up? Right? Where, where, where does he get these different, these different things from? Where, are, where, where do they exist from? So we're going to see in a second. Um, n- now go back. Well, I just want to show you something cool about the number 13. Okay? What else is 13? What? The Midos Harachamim. Right? Yur, Gimel, Yur Gimel is also the Midos Harachamim, right? the 13 act, uh, attributes of mercy. Right? Hashem, Hashem, Kel Rachum, Vechanun that we talk about on Hashem Kippur. It's also 13, right? So you feel like they should be connected. But we'll see. But take a look at source number four. You don't really find that the Chassam Sofer talks about some concept of a 13 that existed before the Rambam. But the Shla HaKadosh in source number four is Shia Hurwitz, who lived in Prague. If your name, if they call you Hakadosh, so that means you were a expert, you were a, a you know a um, expert in mysticism. Certain people, or Chaim Hakadosh, we don't say right. Certain people that we call Hakadosh, um, even the Rambam we don't call Hakadosh, but but the Shla is called the Shla Hakadosh. It's like stands for the Shnei Luchos Habris. His name is the sefer that he wrote. So you wrote another sefer called the MS Vamuna, uh, the Shara Osio. Sorry, and the section called MS Vamuna. He writes as follows: Umatzasi Tfilo Yeshana. He says, I found a, an old prayer. It comes from a person named Tavyomi. Tavyomi is a person who we don't find in the Talmud Bavli, but we find Tavyomi in the Talmud Yushami. Which is very interesting because the Talmud Yushami goes back, way back. That's we're talking about the turn of the century. The turn of the, you know, uh, zero, right? Back, back towards that time already. A little bit, maybe a little bit later. So we're talking about many, many, a long time, well, well before the Rambam lived, right, in the, in the 12th century. And he says as follows, Zen Nuschan, this is the, the language of the Tefillah. He wrote some of Fanecha Hashem, HaMikudash Shlosh God who is sanctified through 13. Laman Avram Yitzchak HaRishonim, Bebrisos Shlosh Avram Yitzchak who had a bris of 13. How did Avram Yitzchak have a bris of 13? So if you look in the Torah where it talks about the end of this, week, this coming week's Parsha and Parsha Lachacha, when we talk about the mitzvah of bris milah, the word bris is found 13 times. Fascinating, right? Ulaman Yaakov Ishtam Yaakov, who had 13, how did he have 13 children? Two possibilities. Dina or Ephraim and Menashe. Right? So he's, he's right, 13. He had 13 children. Right? You should give me, have Rachmanas on me, on those who fulfill the Torah, which is learned out through 13 ways that, we, that the Torah is, is, is understood. You know, uh, you, know you should uh, protect me from, from happenstance. And don't hold back. The thirteen attributes from me. It could mean the thirteen minos harachamim also. The er panecha elai vodzish sechli lepoel taravet techaneni veidacha b'shen imiyosher ikarim shloshesrei. Ikarim shloshesrei is not talking about thirteen attributes of mercy, right? 
Again, this concept. And that, so he argues that this comes from that this comes from Tavyomi, who we're talking again way, 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 way before the Rambam. This idea of 13 Ikarim, which is fascinating. Um, why the number 13, though, is still not totally clear. Um, but again, if it's referencing the bris, it's what connects us to Hashem. It references all of Am Yisrael together is supposed to believe these things because there are 13 children of, uh, of Yaakov Avinu. It's an interesting concept. But, fine. Okay. Um, but the question, so the, so the question really is what the Rambam is doing here. So, so what could you argue? How did the Rambam get to these ikar? What's he basing it on? These 13 things a person must believe to remain in. Where could it be coming from? Based on what we've seen so far. We have a mission which tells us certain things that if you don't believe, you are out. Right? So what did the Rambam do? Flipped it. And instead of teaching, right, and he does, in, in the Yad Chazak itself, in the Mishnah Torah, he talks about the things, certain these things that you're out. But, but what really he's doing in the Muna is he's talking, he flips it. Instead of telling me the ways to be out if you don't believe, he's saying these are the things that need to get you in. Okay? And what's fascinating, um, what's fascinating is that, well, I'll ask the following question. If that's true, right, then why didn't the mission just say it? Why does the mission say, if you want to be in, if you want to get alam haba, this is the key. No, believe these things. Right? Why does it hide it like all the way in like, you know, the back of Masech Sanhedrin all the way at the end, nobody gets there. Not really tell us about it. Why is that something, it's so important. Why is the mission like, if you don't believe these things, so you're kind of out and, right? These are so important. These are the fun, fun, foundational concepts. You could also ask the question, though, so, so then say it in the positive. Say it in the positive. So I want to the following explanation given like this. The Rambam says in a different place, why is it, if the Torah talk, if, if we know there's Olam Haba, right? The Chazal are filled <coughs> with concept of Olam Haba that's the last one. So why doesn't the Torah talk about Olam Haba? The Torah, not in one place, says, and if you do mitzvos, you'll get to go to the spiritual place, and you're gonna, it's going to be amazing, and it's going, to be, you know, it's going to be the best, most amazing experience, a, a spiritual experience, nothing like it. Why doesn't the Torah talk about that? And the Rambam says, I'll tell you why. Basically, he says it like this. He says, when, whenever we do, the Torah tells us instead, if you keep the mitzvahs, what happens? And we say it in the Shema. When I'm going to give you rain, and the land's going to be great, and the, the children will be happy, and everything's going to have a house. And it's going to... I'm like, what? That, that's what it's about? Rain? I keep all the mitzvahs, it's going to rain a lot. I'll get a, I'll get a, I'll get a bonus. These are the things that matter to me. I'll these things that don't matter. Right? Why, why are those the things that I get if I, if I do the mitzvahs? The nice things are lamazet, that's nice, but it doesn't even compare. So the Rambam says one thing, but it really says almost two things. He says, I'll tell you why. 
He says, because if you, if, if you show yourself as a person who cares about spiritual things, what takes a person away from spiritual things? The physical tear does. Right? The things that go on in the world that don't go right. I, I have to go to work and I have to you know, go to the doctor and I, this is wrong and that's wrong. I spend my whole time running around to all those things. I can't focus on Anavodos Hashem. So Hashem says, if you do the right thing, what's going to happen? I'm going to make your normal life in this world calmer and you'll be able to focus on the things that really matter. But what he's really saying, and I've heard some explain it this way, is that if, if I would tell you right, that the goal of life is Olam Haba, right? and this, this is how to get there, what's a person going to do? What are they spend their whole life doing? Chasing after those things. Chasing after those things. Right? Instead I tell you, here's how to live life in the world. And if you do, then you're going to get, afterwards, you'll get that reward. So then people are going to focus on what they're supposed to here to do. It's wrong with I want you to focus on what you're here to do in this world. I want you to focus on the next world. The Mesil Sharim, if you take a look in source number six, Mesil Sharim, the first, in the first chapter, talks about the reason that God put us in the world is for what reason? To give us Alam Haba. I always found this very disturbing, actually. The whole purpose. The purpose of life is to get to Olam That's the job. Job of life, get to Olam That to me sounds like Islam. Right? And radical Islam. That's what it sounds like, right? Just get me there. And get me there quick, I guess. Right? What I have to spend my time here for? So my Rebbe, Rebbe Tversky, once said, I, I learned, it's like such an important concept that he said. He said, this first paragraph of Mesir is not the way we're supposed to look at the world. It's the way God looks at the world. Meaning, God wants us to work hard, and God wants us to spend our time in this world doing the things we're supposed to do. So that He can then give us that reward, because He knows that, by the way, Allah Mabba is going to be like way better than anything we have ever experienced. So He wants to give that to us. So he places us in this world to do the things we need to do. To live a meaningful life. And to sacrifice and to do for others and to sacrifice for Hashem and, and to find meaning and spirituality in this world so that he can give that to us later. But he doesn't intend for us to be spending our whole life in this world focused on Allah Abba. Because that's, that's not what life's about. It's what you'll get if you do it right. But that's not supposed to be our goal. It's not supposed to be our focus. So it could explain why the Mishnah doesn't spend, you know, first Mishnah and Shas, say, this is how you get to Haba, these 13 things. So what are people going to do? No problem, I'll create a yeshiva, we'll sit all day, and, and, and we're going to meditate on these 13 concepts all day. Meditate on these concepts to get to Haba, right? If that's not what we're supposed to be doing, yes, it's true. Yes, these are foundational principles, but they're not our job. They're not the thing we're supposed to be doing all day. But what is clear is that what the Rambam has done is that he took these, this Mishnah in Sanhedrin which tells me what happens if you don't believe in certain things and then through that creates this framework of 13 things where we see others drop down into more like 6 or maybe 3 foundational principles which are really the ones that are found in that Mishnah anyways and says this is what, you, this is what you're expected to believe as a Jew. It's not what you should be meditating on all day. It's not what you should be focusing on all the time. But it is something that's just kind of the basic building blocks of a Jewish belief. 
Somebody have a hand up? No? Yes? No? Okay. Um, fine. Okay. Um, and by the way, there are those who understood the Rambam just as we read him. Rechaim Risker was, was well known for having said, the people said, what if a person, you know, uh, they didn't know. They, they have the wrong beliefs and it's not their fault. So Rechaim Risker would say, Nebuchadnezzar is Eichanapikaris. Is a person who, uh, it's not their fault, they don't believe. They also they still don't believe. They still don't believe. And he argued that it's not a punishment. It's, it's a reality. If I don't believe in these things, so it's going to affect the way I relate to the Torah. If I don't believe that Torah is given by God, so I'm going to read the Torah in a, in, a, in a fundamentally flawed way. If I don't believe that God created the world, so I'm going to live my life in a different way than if I, if I believed it. And therefore, it, 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 it automatically has a spiritual impact on us, not knowing these ideas. Yeah. Good. So does that mean those people are punished? To say, are, are, are kicked out in that way? Not necessarily. That's not clear. That's not clear. We're going to have to see. The Chazadish was saying we should talk about the concept of Tinnuk Shanishba. Right? A person who, who literally means someone who was taken away when they were a baby and they, and they don't know anything. But Tinnuk Shanishba can apply. The Chazadish applied Tinnuk Shanishba in Eretz Yisrael with secular Jews who just never. You have secular you have Jews living in Israel today who do not know Moshe Rabbeinu, who do not know Avram Yitzchak Yaakov. Right? So, can you possibly understand that God's going to hold them to the same, to the same, uh, you know, um, standards as everybody else? It's hard. It's hard to hard to imagine that. But the, but the point that Rav Chaim was making was that it's a it's a reality. Right? When I don't have these beliefs, it's going to impact the way I view Judaism. I can't I can't view them the same way if I don't if I don't believe this is definitely true, right? If I don't believe that God gave the Torah, so I will relate to Torah learning in a fundamentally flawed way. I, I'll ask questions and do without assumptions, with assumptions that are not correct and it will have an impact. But it doesn't mean that the person is necessarily held accountable in the same way. Yeah. Bernie, I passed around by in a second. Yes. So I think I think there's a very one very important point. We're going to talk about this more in the in the, in the fourth year when we talk about like struggles with belief. Um, so I think that's a lot of, a lot of that is going to come down to some of these these questions. We're going to build on some of this for that. Um, but I, I think there's a very important point, which is that the, that many point out that the Sefer points out, and others point out that the idea of belief in God does not mean that I know it a thousand percent. Doesn't mean that I have no question in my mind, right? It's, a, it's kind of a, a very basic level of knowledge that I think that this is true. It doesn't mean that I've proven it beyond a reasonable doubt because, or I said beyond a shadow of a doubt, because you can't prove these things beyond a shadow of a doubt. It's not provable. It's just not possible. I can't prove that God exists just like I can't prove that God doesn't exist. It's a reasonable thing to believe. The Gemara is filled with this, you know, that uh, someone came to Rabbi Akiva, I think, and he said, uh, you know, uh, he doesn't believe, believe in the Creator. So Rabbi Akiva said, you know, who, he showed him a piece of paper with words on it. He said, who created those words? And he says, I did. He goes, who created your jacket? 
He says, the tailor who created that chair, the carpenter. He said, right. Everything in the world is created by somebody. Because who created the world? It's a, it's a, it's a reasonable, reasonable argument to make. It doesn't mean that, it's, you know, that you have to be able to prove it because you can't prove it. But, it, but I think you know, that, that question of like being able to, to, to talk to myself almost in a certain sense and to know that this is something that I, I think is true. Like, I, I, I right. I go with it. Is adjusted. Essentially, it's calibrated like, like I do. Even though there are certain parts of this no, that I have a hard time with. No, it, it, it's fairly irrelevant how I feel at that moment. Right. 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 So Ibleich would say, not necessarily. Right. Ibleich would argue that according to the Rambam, if someone says, I want to be, I'm going to keep kosher, and I'm going to keep Shabbos, and I'm going to live in a community, and I'm going to go to shul, but I, I, but I really don't believe these things. So Ibleich would call that orthoprax. Right? I'm practicing orthodoxy, but, I don't, but I don't, I'm not a believing Jew. Right? But I think that's different than someone, that's someone who says, I really don't believe it, but I'm just going to do the stuff. Right? Because think about it logically then why are you doing this stuff? If I really don't believe it, and I'm doing the mitzvahs, why am I doing the mitzvahs? Because Hashem commanded me? No, because I want to. Right? Then the, 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 if it's not based on belief, then what am I doing? Right? So I think if I really don't believe, I really think it's all a lie, and I just do it anyways, you know, is there value there? I'm sure there's value there, but Rabbi Blythe would argue, and he says this, that he thinks according to the Rambam, you know, it's not going to fix it. Right? There's a different question to be dealt with, which I want to talk about in, in much, in much, for, for a much longer time in the fourth year, about what do we do when we really have a hard time with some of these things. And I, I, we're going to get there. But I want to talk about, before we do that, I want to talk about those who argue with the Rambam. Do you want any hint to the fact that the Rambam has been relatively accepted in, by, the, by, uh, by the Jewish community? Just take a look at source number seven from the Siddur, which is Yigdal and the Animamans, right? both found in your Siddur and every art scroll sitter and every sitter in the world. You say Yigdal every single day. Yigdal is 13 lines long. Why is Hamet Mesi Mecha? So why is that one said twice? Because there are only 13, right? It's not an even number. So that's why when we say Yigdal, you always say the last line twice because it's only 13. Why? Because each one of them lines up with one of the 13 principles of faith. Um, the Animamins at the end of the sitter, the end of Shacharis, which many people have the minuk to say every single day, are basically the 13 principles of faith of the Rambam a little bit different. Not, the language is not exactly the same. But if you want proof that the Jewish people have, for the most part, accepted the Rambam, so that's, that's where you find it. Nevertheless, there were those who questioned certain aspects of what the Rambam argued. Okay? The first one was the Ravid. The Ravid, who uh, was famous for basically his notes on the Rambam, say for... Uh, uh, the Ram is Mishnah Torah. Every time the Ram writes something, if the Ravid is quite, they say, how do you know that God created the world? Because the Rambam said so, and the Ravid didn't argue. <laughs> right? So the Ravid doesn't, if the, if the Rambam says something, the Ravid doesn't argue, that means the Ravid agrees. Right? That then we're good. And the moment the Rambam steps out of line, the Ravid goes after him with very fierce, intense language, scream at him and say horrible things about the Rambam. Um, and he does here also. The Rambam Hilchas Tshuva which is source number source number eight on your sheet. Source number eight on your sheet. The Rambam there talks about the concept of believing that God has a body. He says there are five different people who are called a min. 
Some people say the word min comes from Christianity. Misham Yeshu, yeah, Yeshu Hanotri. Yeah, Mitan Yeshu Hanotri. Some say that's referring to a min is someone who's a Christian and who believes in, 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 in Jesus. Um, not clear that's what it really is, but people, some people say that. Um, but the bottom line is Ram says as follows. There are five, different, five people who are called a min, and one of them is, where it's bolded, Omer Ribonachar. There's one God, Aval Shuguf Ubal Tamuna, that he has a he has a body. Saying that God has a body, the Ramam argues makes you a min. So the Ravid says, not so fast. Next paragraph, Amrav Ram Valama Karal is a min. Why is that person called a, a heretic? Vikami Gedolim Vitovi Mimenu, Halchu Bizua Machshava. Many really people who were greater than the Rambam. Yikes. Right? Uh, believe this. They believe that God had a body. There's somebody showing them believe God had a body. How, why do they believe that? Why would someone believe God has a body? Why might I think that God has a hand or a finger? The Torah says so. <laughs> it says that God outstretched his hand, right? So I, I don't know. If I'm reading the Torah, what I think, God has a body. Right? So right, this, what do you want from them? They made a mistake. They were reading the, they were reading the Torah, right? It confused them. Leave them alone. The Ravid also believed God doesn't have a body. Okay, Rabbi Dr. Tversky. This is Rabbi Tversky's father, who is the, the head of the Judaic Studies Department at Harvard University. So, and was also a Hasidic Rebbe, the Tana Rebbe. So Rabbi Tversky wrote a book on the Rambam. He also wrote a book on the Ravid. Write a book on the Rambam. You have to write a book on the Ravid also, I guess, right? So he wrote a book on the Ravid, and he said, there's no question the Ravid agreed with the Rambam. That you can't believe that you're not supposed to believe that God has a body. That's not a Jewish belief. Nevertheless, the Ravid said, you might not, maybe that's a wrong belief, doesn't make you not be close. Okay, so that's already the first crack in the armor a little bit, right, here on the Rambam. But there's more. There's more to this. There's someone named Rabbeinu Kreskis. Rabbeinu Chastai Kreskis. Um, one second. Yeah, Rabbi wrote a sefer called Or Hashem. He lived in Barcelona. He was a student of Rabbi Nisim of the Ran, and uh, living in the 14th century, a big philosopher. They say I don't know if it's true that Spinoza was you know influenced by Rabbi Kreskis. That Spinoza went a little further off uh, than from Rabbi Kreskis, but he was influenced by Rabbi Kreskis. And Rabbi Kreskis argues, he basically argues that there are six fundamental Jewish beliefs. Fundamental beliefs that you must have. What are the six? If you look in the fourth line, now it's very hard to see. Sorry, the, the end of the third line. He tells you all six. Ha'echad yediyas Hashem. One that God exists. Beis hashkachas obahem. That Hashem pays attention. He knows what's going on. Gimel yecholto. That God, basically what we call schar That God can punish if he wants to and can reward. Dalad nevoi speaks to human beings. Hey bechira. That a human being can choose. And above, hatachlis, which really means that he believes that, to, to believe that the Torah is, is the, is, makes our lives better. It gives us purpose in life. And Rabbi Christ says, I'll tell you how I know. This is logical. If you're going to have a God who commands, so what has to happen first? That God has to exist. Number two, he has to be paying attention. He has to also have the ability to follow through if you don't do what he says. And it also means that the person who's there has to be able to learn from him. It means they need to be able to communicate with God. And what also means, though, is that the person, if the person's a robot, it's not going to work. And therefore, he must have Bechira Chavshis to choose. Rabbi Kreskis doesn't get these six principles from the Mishnah and Sanhedrin. 
He gets it from logic. By the way, it's not just a logic of Judaism, it's a logic of any religion. Any, how could you, if you believe in this religion, you must believe these six principles because otherwise, it does, it, otherwise you're fooling yourself. What are you doing? Right? If you believe that, God, that there's a Torah and that you're supposed to live your life according to God's, what God is dictating to you, then you must believe those things or otherwise the whole thing's a joke. That's what he argues. But what's very important is where he's getting it from. He's not taking it from that Mishnah and Sanhedrin. He's getting it from the logical right, deduction from what religion should be all about and certainly the, right, the, the true religion. But it goes even further than that. Yeah? That he does. Or does it mean that, that he doesn't pretty much everything that happens to you is... Oh, so that's a different question. Right, right. So we're going to talk next time about Hashkaka Pratis. We'll talk about that. But it th- doesn't necessarily mean that, that every single thing that happens to me in this world is because of sin. Not necessarily. But, but it means that God can, or God does, reward and punish. That reward and punishment might be totally in love above. Right? But it means that God does... There are consequences to my actions. Because if Rabbi Christ would argue, because if there aren't consequences to my actions, then what are we doing? We could be robots. Who cares? There's no point. But look at the Sefer Karim source number 11. Sefer number 11 is Rabbi Yosef Albo. Yosef Albo, the Sefer Karim, who was a student of Rabbi Kreskis, based a lot of the ideas uh, in his Sefer on Rabbi Kreskis and on the Tashmates, actually. Um, and he argues that there are only three. What are the three? Look at. Uh, Number 11. There are three only. What are the three? That God exists. That God pays attention and he punishes and he rewards. And that God gave the Torah on our seat. Is the Rav Yosef, is Yosef Abel arguing with the Rambam? Why not? It's just larger categories. Right? And he really says that. That really, and he actually argues at one point that, that uh, those three categories are really just the larger headings that the Rambam himself can fit a lot of, not all of them. Mashiach doesn't really fit there. Chiyosa Mason, not necessarily. Right? But the rest of them, pretty much, pretty much will fit in there. Nevoah even, that God has to command us. Right? So they, 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 for the most part, can fit within there. But, but, but listen to where Yosef Abel gets them from. This is beautiful. It says like this. He says, I'll tell you where they come from. Look on, sort, on page 7. <coughs> the top of the page. How do I know that these three principles are the foundational concepts of Amunah? Through which a person should work hard to eventually find that, that sense of completeness. It's the three brachos that we say in Rosh Hashanah. These three concepts, he says, the concept of the back again before the, before the mission is even written. They create one time a year, the day of the coronation of the king, that we recite three brachos in the middle. It's the only time we recite three brachos in the Lashmon Esrei. Three brachos. And what are they? Machios, that God is the king.
king. Zichronos, that God pays attention, God remembers. And Shofros, how does Shofros begin? That Hashem blew the shofar at Hasinah. Those are the three foundational elements of Jewish belief. Amazing. And of course, when do you read them? When do we daven them? This is like my Russia next year, Rosh Hashanah. But when do you, when we daven them on Rosh Hashanah? Because that's the day when we renew our faith in God. So we remind ourselves those three. That's like, I, when I saw that, I was like, that was amazing. It's beautiful. But he says one more thing that's very important also. You switch to source number 13. And this is very important. How, if you are with Yosef Albo, how do you regard someone who doesn't believe in these things? The same way as the Rambam? Not necessarily. Source number 13. Source number 12 is our Barbanel, who basically argues that the Rambam was not really telling us 13 like, new ideas in belief, but rather it's an educational tool to help us understand the basic fundamentals of belief. But it's not like, it's sort of like a way of letting people know. People can't learn more in depth, he basically says. The Rambam wanted to give you like a basic headache. But it's like the 13, not necessarily other things could fit. It wasn't as. But the Tibri Carmen says it like this. Take a look at the English. Anyway. It's proper, however, to say that in this, in, that this in justification of those Jewish scholars who deal with this subject, every Israelite is obligated to believe that everything that is found in the Torah is absolutely true. And anyone who denies anything that's found in the Torah, knowing that it is the opinion of the Torah, is an unbeliever. As the rabbis say in chapter Chilek, that anyone who says the Torah, whole Torah emanates from divine being except one pasuk, which Moses said on his own authority, is liable to the imputation charge in the biblical expression. Meaning, you say one pasuk, Moshe Benin didn't write, that it wasn't from God, or Moshe wrote it himself, that, that's, that's already that's a heresy. That's, by the, way, by the way, one of the reasons given for why Moshe Rabbeinu is punished so severely when he hits the rock. Because God didn't tell him to hit the rock. So if God doesn't respond, you're fired immediately, what does that open the door to? Oh, sometimes Moshe Rabbeinu doesn't do what God said. So the moment Moshe steps out of line, God says, you're not, not, you're not going to hear it to You're fired. You're done. You are no longer my prophet. Because we have to keep the, the, the immutability of the Torah, that every single word, every single letter, comes from God's mouth directly. Okay. So that's what we said. Fine. But then look what he says, when it's underlined, not boldly. But a person who upholds the law of Moses, and believes in its principles, but when he undertakes to investigate these matters with his reason, and scrutinize the text, is misled by his speculation, and interprets a given principle otherwise, and it's taken to mean at first sight. The person makes a mistake. Or denies the principle because he thinks that it does not represent a sound theory which the Torah obliges us to believe. That's not just a mistake. The person questions or erroneously denies that a dogma of the Torah, uh, sorry, that the given belief is a fundamental principle, which, however, he believes as he believes the other dogmas of the Torah which are not fundamental principles, or entertains a certain notion in relation to one of the miracles of the Torah because he thinks that he is not thereby denying any of the doctrines, whatever, a person makes his mistake, what happens? A person of this sort is not an unbeliever. He is classed with the sages and pious men in Israel, though he holds erroneous theories. His sin is due to error and requires atonement. His language is, So 
to real. That's a very different approach than the Rambam. A person who even denies one of these concepts has a gross elbow is wrong, but they're not at. And why, why would there be a distinction like this by the Rambam and Yosef Albo? You could argue because the Rambam's basing this entire theory on that mission in Sanhedrin, which is interact. Yosef Albo is talking about what Chazal tell us. Right? That Chazal saw these as the three fundamental principles. Okay. Yeah. Yeah. Correct. No, so there are, there are allegories and there are things that, you know, that, are, that are meant to be read a certain way and, and we learn from Tarsh about that, how to understand it. That's, that, that's definitely true. The, 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 the creation story happened necessarily in seven days, 24 hour days. Not necessarily, right? They'd be shown themselves. You know, explain that way. But, the, but, but in general, the concept is the same. What's, what's clear though, even those who disagree with the Rambam, what do they all believe still? There are certain fundamental beliefs, and they're pretty much the same. Pretty much the same. Even those who attack the Rambam, right, they still believe basically in the same ones. A couple here or there, which maybe they don't, they don't all agree on, but for the most part, they agree in the, the concept of fundamental Jewish belief. Fundamental Jewish belief either based on logic, based on something that Chazal told us, right, based on Mishnah and Sanhedrin, or based on the approach of Chazal and creating the fields of Rosh Hashanah. And one piece that Rabbi Bleich ends with here, he makes the exact same point. That, that everybody, everybody agrees. Kreskis, Albo, everyone, their disagreement is really not about, disagreement a little bit about what happens to such a person who doesn't believe. But what they are, they all agree about. So, okay, so what? So what is that, like we said before, if you want to talk about belief, the first thing we need to do is know what's being asked upon us. There's a lot of things to believe. And it's not simple. Um, and it takes time to discover and to research and to look, and that's what we're going to do over the next couple of weeks. Take a look at some of the specific questions. Hashkacha, what does it mean that Hashem pays attention and He's around and He responds to the things that we do and, and, we're, and we somehow think that God is involved and around in our lives? Uh, what does it mean to What does it mean in terms of my responsibility to see God as, as playing a role in my life? And what is it going to mean when I have trouble with some of these beliefs? We'll deal with all those as we move forward. But tonight was an opportunity to kind of see the foundations, see the principles, where do they come from, who argues, why do they argue, and why do they respond right, to those who don't believe in different ways. In the end of the day, the vast, vast majority of even modern day uh, post-game, etc., do assume that the Rambam is the, is the definitive approach here. Um, and the Rambam's approach, the idea that Yigdal and uh, the Animamins have, have proliferated, that the idea of the Yigdal Karim is something that people know about because the Rambam has been accepted. Um, but it's important to know why and where it comes from. And over the next couple of weeks, there's a chance to discover a little bit more some of those details and where, and where they take us. Okay.